Have you ever had one of those uh, crucial moments in your life where you, you desperately needed something, maybe an answer to a problem or some kind of provision for a tremendous need and you, uh, you didn't have any idea where that answer or where that provision might come from or if it would come at all? You ever experienced that where you've had your back against the wall, maybe at your job or in a relationship or some situation that seemed impossible to overcome, short of a miracle? But then at the 11th hour, just as all hope for a solution for that provision or resolution seemed all but lost, against all odds, just what you needed came through by way of the most unlikely and unpredictable means imaginable. I've had a few of those experiences in my life. I bet with this room full of people we could tell some stories like that because we tend to carry those kinds of experiences with us. In fact, they often become defining moments in our lives, moments that shape us for the better or for the worse. I think even when the answers or the provision does come, Sometimes we can allow the stress and trauma of those kinds of experiences to unravel us emotionally or to wreck our confidence in the future, even, even derail our faith. Or those experiences can mold our character for the better, temper our disposition toward adversity. And I think most importantly, those moments can actually build our faith if we're willing to accept, and this is a, a big if because this is where so many of us get hung up, if we're willing to accept that ultimately we are not the ones in control of the outcome of those situations to begin with, right? It's easy to feel like we're in control of everything in our lives until it all goes sideways. And then we panic and we plead with God to do something, to, to take control of the situation as if he were not already in control all along. But he is. He is in control. All along. Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Which can make one wonder if God is sovereign, if he has all authority and power and control, then why even worry about faith? Right? If, if God is in control of everything, then why does our faith matter? Why, why does our faith need to be? Uh, built up or strengthened at all? What difference does it make? Well, first of all, the answer to that question is something that changes us, not God. God is not made more or less according to our measure of faith. He's not dependent upon or commanded by our faith. He's not made less able by our lack of faith or more able by an abundance of it. God is God. He is immutable, unchangeable, steadfast, all-powerful. He is unequaled. Our, our faith or lack of it does not change him and it doesn't wrestle one ounce of sovereignty away from him. What we do or do not do relative to the measure of faith that we may have in any given situation does not alter God in the equation one iota because he is unalterable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. How we choose to exercise, to, to use our faith does, however, have a prodigious effect, a, a monumental effect on us, first of all. And secondly, although God is not changed by our faith, he does respond to our faith. Luke 8, 48, after a woman who had been sick for 12 years spent all of her money on doctors who could not heal her, 
She presses her way through the crowds of people following Jesus just to touch the fringe of his garment, the Bible says, believing that he could heal her, and she was healed. And as Jesus confronts her, he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In Luke 17, 19, after healing a Samaritan man with leprosy, among others, Jesus said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. In James 5, 14 and 15, James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Clearly, God responds to our faith. In fact, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So not only are we changed by our faith in God, but he responds to our faith in him, which is why there's tremendous culpability, responsibility for us in what we do with the faith that he's given us in times of want and distress. We're, we're very much responsible for our choices, our actions, because even though God is sovereign, he has given us a free will within his sovereign plan to choose how to exercise that faith, how to use that faith that he's given us. And how we choose to use that faith has great effect in our lives and in the lives of others as God responds and we are then forever changed. Now, there are people at one extreme who believe that God is not only sovereign, but that we have no free will at all, that we don't choose anything. And then the other extreme says uh, God is not sovereign, that he's not in control of anything. When sin entered the world, he just pulled back and, and now the world is sort of run amok and at some point in the future, he will return and make everything right again. But until then, we're on our own, unless we can coax him with enough prayer and effort to maybe convince him to engage in our lives on our behalf, which is really just another form of legalism. It says maybe if you pray enough and you're passionate enough, maybe if you spend enough hours in the day reading your Bible and seeking after God, just maybe God will move in your life and help you out of the situation you've gotten yourself into. And so those are two opposite extremes concerning uh, God's sovereignty and our free will. Somewhere in between those extremes, however, I, what I believe we clearly see in Scripture is God's sovereignty and our free will existing quite well together. Okay? In, in theological terms, that's called compatibilism, this idea that sovereignty and free will actually work together as a part of God's plan for us. And the point of all that is this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ... There will be times throughout your life when situations and circumstances will be presented to you that will require you to make some choices. Choices that will necessitate great faith in God because they will also demand that you act at substantial risk to yourself. In fact, the risk may be so high that failure is guaranteed if God doesn't also sovereignly and sometimes supernaturally move on your behalf. Matthew 14, as the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee in a boat, an overwhelming storm comes up and simultaneously the disciples see Jesus, but they don't know it's him, walking on the water nearby and understandably they start freaking out. And so Jesus reassures them that it is him and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water, it wasn't the power of positive thinking that kept Peter on the surface of the sea. It wasn't positive vibes and a good outlook that kept Peter from sinking. No, it was God sovereignly and supernaturally acting on Peter's behalf against all odds to enable him to defy the laws of nature. But notice how Peter's faith came into play, how his faith still mattered in that situation. When Peter's faith in God's ability to overcome all odds was overtaken by his own fear and doubt, he began to sink. And what did Jesus say to him? Oh, you of little faith. Now, if Peter was not responsible at all, if he had zero culpability for how he exercised his faith in that situation, if, if whatever faith Peter did have was solely the responsibility of God, no responsibility on Peter whatsoever, then when Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, he would have actually been criticizing himself for not giving Peter the faith that he needed to successfully walk on the water. Right? Peter, God gave him his faith. Of course we believe that. That's true. But Peter was still responsible to exercise that faith relative to the circumstances that he was facing. God was fully sovereign over that situation, and yet Peter was fully free to believe or doubt God's sovereignty in that same situation. And if we are going to be able to navigate the rough waters of this life, there will be times when we're going to need a sovereign God to act against all odds or it's game over for us. And yet in our free will, we must choose to use, to exercise the faith that he has given us sometimes well before that need is met, before we know the outcome of that situation, before we can even see him working. And the only way we can do that is by accepting the fact that ultimately God is in control, he is sovereign, and we are not. When we're confronted with impossible situations, we must have the faith to believe that he can move on our behalf against all odds. And when you, when you exercise that kind of faith, not only does God respond, but it changes us forever. Our faith becomes greater, stronger, more powerful as we see his sovereign hand working in our lives in ways that only he can. In James 5.16, right after saying the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Okay, faith is a powerful gift from God and sometimes we need to exercise that faith against all odds before we know the outcome. And of course, that's the hard part. That's why it's called faith. And so today, as we continue in our story, working our way through the book of Esther, we find our protagonists, Esther and Mordecai, in one of these impossible situations. Their backs are against the wall. Nothing short of life and death is hanging in the balance. If you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that Haman, the king's man, is bent on uh, completely annihilating the Jews because of Mordecai's refusal to bow before him. So Haman convinces the king to send out an edict for all the Jews to be killed. And Mordecai and Esther agree that Esther must then go before the king to plead their case on behalf of the Jews, including themselves, even though she hadn't been summoned by the king, which under Persian law was to court death. 
And so they agree to fast for three days first on behalf of Esther and what she's about to do, not knowing the outcome, except that the odds are clearly stacked against them. In fact, at the close of that chapter, Esther makes this remarkable and remarkably brave statement. She says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Let's pick up the story where we left off then. The three days have now passed of fasting and prayer, and Esther approaches the king. Chapter 5, we'll start with the first four verses. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand, And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So at the end of chapter 4, we're left to hold our collective breath as Esther makes a commitment to Mordecai to go before the king in three days, knowing that she's probably going to die for doing so because she hadn't been called by the king. And so as chapter 5 opens here, the three days have passed, and Esther, with her, her very best royal clothing on, probably to remind him that she's the queen, makes her way to the inner court of the palace in what must have been a terrifying moment. And she waits there before the king to see if he will receive her or order her execution, keeping in mind she hasn't seen him now for 30 days, which was most likely a signal that his affection for her had begun to wane. And when it says that she stood in the inner court in verse 1, the word stood in the Hebrew is the word amad, which in, in this context means to remain, to abide. In other words, Esther was there waiting for the king to see her and respond. We don't know how long. It must have been agonizing for her to stand there in silence awaiting her fate but then something unexpected happens the king sees Esther and he holds out his golden scepter toward her which meant that Esther was permitted to not only live but to come and speak before the king and then he asks her what is it queen Esther what is your request it shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom which was not to be taken literally by the way and Esther um, understood that for a king or a ruler to offer up to half of his kingdom to someone else was a commonly used uh, idiom or expression among ancient royalty to let others know that the king was amicable. He, He was feeling particularly generous toward the person before him. It's the same offer that Herod makes uh, to the daughter of Herodias uh, centuries later in Mark chapter 6 when she danced before him. And so Esther knows that she's not only going to live, at, at least for the time being, but that she has a green light now to begin to reestablish her relationship with the king, which will be crucial for her to do if she's ever to be able to get him to consider the request that she truly wants to ask of him, which is to turn against Haman and revoke his own edict to destroy the Jews, both of which at this moment would surely be impossible for Esther to expect the king to ever consider. They haven't seen each other for 30 days, yet he's with Haman, his best pal, all the time. To ask the king to turn against his closest confidant would have been suicide at this point. And to ask the king to revoke uh, a royal edict, even worse, as royal decrees were generally considered irrevocable. 
in the Persian Empire. So Esther, with brilliant strategy, decides to take it slow and to attempt to reestablish some rapport with the king before asking him uh, to do for her what would normally be unthinkable against all odds. And so Esther responds to the king's question with a request that not only shows great wisdom and patience on her part, but incredible faith. Esther says, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So she doesn't say, if it please the king, let me go get a feast together for you and Haman. No, she says, if it please the king, come today to the feast that I've prepared. For the past three days, up until this moment, Esther didn't even know if she was going to be permitted to even live long enough to have a conversation with the king, let alone prepare a royal feast. In fact, if you look at the, the Hebrew construction of the phrase, and if I perish, I perish, back in chapter 4, we did this two weeks ago, you, you see that the original language, the and if part of that sentence, really carries more of a, a sense of when than it does and if. So Esther was clearly anticipating a negative response from the king, which would mean her certain death. And yet when the king asks her to make her request known, she says, will you come to the feast? I've got it all ready. It's waiting for you. Which means that even though Esther knew that her death was probably likely, she still took the time and expense and effort before she came to the king to plan and prepare and present a royal feast for him. This wasn't something you threw together last minute. What incredible faith for Esther to take such deliberate steps in preparing this banquet for the king, not knowing if she would even have the opportunity to invite him to it before dying at his own hands. Esther exercised great faith against all odds. And what a great lesson this is for us when we find ourselves in a very difficult situation. All the odds are stacked against us when we don't know the outcome, but all the signs are pointing not in our favor. Do we give up? Do we give in? Do we walk away? Or do we keep on believing? Do we keep on hoping? Do we keep on working toward a favorable outcome no matter how bleak our situation seems to be? All we can do is our part and have faith in God to do what only He can do. So we pray and we fast and we ask our friends to pray and fast with us just as Esther and Mordecai did and then we keep moving forward. We keep making plans. We keep doing our part faithfully and we leave the outcome to God. Why? Because that's all that we can do. But listen, if we fail to even have faith enough to try, we deny ourselves the opportunity to experience God working sometimes miraculously in our lives. Again, that doesn't, that doesn't mean we negate his ability to accomplish his will because our faith or a lack of it cannot stop him from fulfilling his will. You remember back in chapter 4, verse 14, when Mordecai was responding to Esther's original reluctance to go before the king, he said to her, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. In other words, if you refuse to be faithful in doing your part, God will still accomplish his will. That won't change. You, however, will pay a heavy price for not doing your part. You won't experience all that God has for you to experience, okay? If we, if we want our faith to be strong, to lead us into all that God has planned for us, then we have to be willing 
to go places and do things that require us to actually use our faith. Right? If the outcome is all but certain, if the situation is perfectly safe, if the results are entirely predictable, if there's never any risk, then what do we need faith for? Our faith grows as we use it, but in order to use it, we have to allow ourselves to be in situations and circumstances and places where we have no other choice but to exercise faith because the odds are stacked against us. The outcome is unclear. It may not seem entirely safe. There's no way to predict the results. Sometimes building our faith means risking our reputations or incomes or popularity or security, even our necks in the face of tremendous difficulties where all that we can do after we've done our part is to have faith and trust that God will show up and do what only He can do by His sovereign will and supernatural hand. I'm not talking about being irresponsible, uh, by the way. I'm talking about being fiercely faithful where God has called us, even in the, faith, uh, the face of great difficulty and uncertainty. That is how our faith grows when we use it because we have no other choice short of giving up and walking away. And we see that here with Esther in our story. She's exercising great faith against all odds. Let's keep reading. Verses 5 through 8. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. And so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I've found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. In other words, let's just do this again tomorrow. Let's enjoy each other's company a little while longer before I tell you what it is that I actually want from you. Esther is strategically brilliant and unbelievably calm, I might add, under pressure, which I have to attribute to the fact that uh, she's not only very clearly just a smart person, but as well, she and Mordecai and all of the Jews in Susa have just spent three days fasting and praying. For her in this moment, remember what James said, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Esther not only had a solid upbringing by Mordecai and a great head on her shoulders working for her, but she had the power of prayer and faith working for her as well. And boy, was it ever working as the king now, after asking her twice what she wants from him, agrees to wait yet another day to hear Esther's request. Let's keep going. Verses 9 through 14. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come, to the king, uh, come with the king to the feast she had prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king, yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. 
And then his wife Zeresh and his, all of his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. 50 cubits high, that's 75 feet in the air. The gallows were built towering upward, not only as a symbol of the height of Haman's own hatred and pride, but also to send an unmistakable message to all of the people in the city that Haman was not to be humiliated by anyone, and especially not by a Jew, the ancient enemy of Haman's own people, the Amalekites. And gallows in ancient Persia were not for hanging victims by a rope as we imagine them today. That would have been merciful. No, the gallows were simply platforms used to display the victim who was impaled on a pole with one sharp end. The victim was lifted up over the pole and then pulled down by his legs slowly onto the pole until it traveled all the way through his body and out of the neck. It was a slow and excruciating and humiliating death. And then the body would be displayed up on the gallows for everyone to take in and consider the crimes of the condemned. So at this moment, Mordecai's immediate future is not looking too good. But he already knew that. Remember, this is after the decree of death was issued for all of the Jews. This was after Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. This was after he mourned for his people at the king's gate. Wouldn't you think, after all of that, the next time Haman walked by that Mordecai would show a little contrition, some honor, some fear, but he didn't. Mordecai stood firm against all odds. There was a resolve in this man, just as there was in Haman, really total gridlock between them. But there was also a big difference between what motivated each of them to do what they were doing. Haman was motivated by a fear of rejection. Mordecai was motivated by a fear of God. Haman yearned for others to honor him. Mordecai yearned for others to honor God. Haman represented the worst kind of pride and hatred towards people. Mordecai represented righteousness and love for God's people. Both very firmly resolved men, but for very different reasons. And Mordecai, knowing that he and the girl that he had raised and all of his people were most likely going to die for his own actions, and yet he continued to stand firm against all odds of being saved, even in the face of the man who had bartered for the indiscriminate slaughter of the entire Jewish race. This is truly astounding, if you really think about it, because it's one thing to take a stand for something. People do that all the time. It is something altogether different when continuing to take that stand means that you and everyone that is with you are going to die. There are not many people who would stick around for that part. We see protests on TV all the time, but as soon as the tear gas is dispersed or the water cannons are turned on, what happens? Everyone scatters. It's easy to take a stand, to protest, to make a statement when you have nothing to lose. But when the stakes are high, when it means potentially losing your life and everyone and everything that is with you that you care about, that's not so easy and it is not very common to see someone remain and stand firm. I'm not sure anyone would have faulted Mordecai if when Haman walked by this last time, he had fallen on his knees before Haman and begged for mercy for him and his people. 
I think that's what most folks in his position would have done. But Mordecai stood firm against all odds of being saved because he knew that he was standing for something bigger than his own life, even the lives of those around him. And so when we talk about exercising our faith against all odds, it's not just what we do before any consequences for our actions are felt. It's what we do in the very face of whatever it is or whomever it is that is threatening those consequences against us. When Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water, and Jesus replied to him, come. Peter got out of the boat, which is probably more than most of us would have done. He showed great faith against all odds. However, as he then was faced with the reality of the storm away from the protection of the boat, when he was actually in a position to lose his life as the wind and waves roared all around him, he began to fear and his faith diminished. And then, of course, he started sinking. It, we need to have great faith against all odds. But then when we actually get out of the boat and we walk into the reality of that storm in our lives, when the possibility of all that we stand to lose becomes up close and personal, do we give in to fear and doubt and run back to the boat or worse, do we abandon our faith and sink in the midst of the storm? Or do we stand firm? And to be honest, I think this is precisely where much of the church in America is living today. It's not hard to find professing believers who say they have great faith in and are willing to stand for Christ and his gospel. But as soon as the heat is turned up, the consequences for taking a stand, as soon as they begin to be felt, when people start walking out of our churches because we refuse to compromise our convictions concerning biblical morality, when the tide of popular opinion turns against the orthodox doctrines of the Bible that have been held by the church for hundreds of years, when our metal is tested in the media or in our educational system, in the halls of government, even within our own walls, will we stand firm against all odds or run back to the boat and abandon our faith. It's not far-fetched. How many people on Facebook every single day tell biblically orthodox, biblically conservative Christians that we're not Christians because we still cling to the absolute truths of Scripture? Instead, we're bigots, haters, ignorant simpletons for believing that God's Word, like God Himself, is unchanging. The Apostle Paul said all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16. And when Paul says that scripture is breathed out by God, he uses the Greek word theopneustos, which doesn't occur anywhere in any other Greek text, biblical or otherwise, prior to this letter that he writes to Timothy. The point being, Paul is placing tremendous emphasis on here on the fact that God's word is uniquely a part of him. In fact, some people believe Paul coined this phrase to make the point that God's word is a part of him in a way that no other writing can be. And therefore, it carries with it divine authority to convict and convert to train and equip, to lead one to righteousness in a way that nothing else can, which also means that no matter how strongly we may feel to the contrary, and no matter how much the collective conscience of our culture changes on issues of doctrine and morality, we are neither qualified nor authorized by God to make changes to his word whenever it suits us. God's word never changes. Why? Because God never changes. 
Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, Matthew 24, 35. So when we're verbally or otherwise assaulted for taking God at his word as it is written, do we stand firm in our faith and in our doctrine, or do we get back in the boat with the crowd where it is safe? And I think this applies to all areas of our lives. When we're faced with opposition from friends and coworkers, when we receive a bad report from a doctor, when our marriages begin to unravel, when the consequences of taking a stand of faith against all odds begin to batter against us relentlessly, do we give up? Do we give in? Abandon our faith that God is sovereign and able to overcome the odds and bow to fear and doubt? Or do we stand firm in the face of opposition? I'm just telling you, your marriage needs you to stand firm and not give up. Your friends need you to stand firm and not compromise your faith or your convictions, even if they say they don't agree with what you're doing or saying. And the unbelieving world all around us needs to see a church that is unashamed and unafraid and unrelenting in its stand for the gospel and in its love for God and in its love for each other, even when our circumstances seem to be conspiring against us, even when our backs are against the wall. We need great faith against all odds, and we also need to stand firm when that faith is tested. Let's move on into chapter 6. It's a very short chapter, and it reveals the last part of this story for today. We'll start with the first five verses. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him saying, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So the night between the two feasts, the king can't sleep. And since there's no TV or internet, he calls for the book of Chronicles. This was the official record of the Persian kings that recounted every official transaction of the royal court, which we have descriptions of from the 4th century BC, historian Herodotus. He specifically describes a list of the king's benefactors within that record. And so it served a purpose beyond just keeping a historical record. It was the book that the Persian kings used to know who they needed to reward for being faithful to the throne. But it wasn't exactly casual reading either. These were official government records. So except for a few highlights, it would have been about as exciting as reading a, a copy of the IRS tax code, which may have been the point, actually, as far as the king was concerned, right? He couldn't sleep. So maybe the voice of one of his attendants droning on through the court records would lull him back to sleep, except that on this particular sleepless night, the attendant just so happened to stumble across one of those highlight moments in the book of Chronicles, which recounted the story of Mordecai some five years earlier, saving the king from assassination. And instead of lulling the king back to sleep, he is now wide awake, trying to figure out a way to honor the man who saved his life and yet somehow never received any reward for his heroic act. And so just as the king begins to ponder his options concerning Mordecai, 
Haman shows up at the royal court in the early morning hours to get permission to brutally execute the same man that the king is trying to figure out how he's going to honor. And so the plot thickens. Let's see what happens. We'll read verse 6 to the end of the chapter. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? This is my favorite part. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, of course he's thinking of himself, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, great idea. Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew. I just wish I could have been a fly on the wall. You know, Mordecai is thinking, what? To Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate, just in case there was another Mordecai, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man with whom the king delights to honor. I don't know who must have been more shocked, Mordecai or Haman. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, <laughs> and with his head covered, almost feel a little bad for him, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Wow! What a stunning turn of events. We know that the Jewish people were and still are at this point under imminent threat of complete annihilation by Haman. But even before that happens, Mordecai is set to be brutally executed as a precursor to the slaughter of the rest of the Jews. Haman's wife and advisors are all in agreement. The gallows are built. It's the morning before the feast, and all that is left to be done is for Haman to secure the king's permission, which by all accounts should be quite simple, because if Haman uh, was already able to get the king to agree to kill all the Jews, surely one more, a little ahead of schedule, wouldn't be a problem. And so despite Esther's great faith against all odds, listen, despite Mordecai's determination to stand firm against all odds, at that point, Mordecai was still going to be killed. Let's not lose sight of the fact that even though Esther did her part and even though Mordecai did his part, even though they were faithful together and stood firm against all the odds, none of those efforts alone would save Mordecai. He was still going to die the morning of the feast. But there was one last piece to the puzzle and that was a sovereign, supernatural, all-powerful, all-knowing, completely in-control God who is over and above everyone and everything. 
Proverbs 16, 9 says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Esther has gone before the king unsummoned under the possibility of death for doing so. Mordecai refused to bow to Haman over and over and over again. Esther prepared a feast for the king before she even knew if she'd have the chance to invite him to it. And then they both fasted and prayed for three days. And yet in spite of all their faithfulness and planning and moving forward, Mordecai's still going to die until God came through against all odds. The king just happens to have a sleepless night, which just happens to be the night before Mordecai is executed. The king had dozens of different diversions to choose from to fill his sleepless night. Music, uh, court performers, dancing. He had hundreds of concubines. Any number of ways to occupy his time, but he just happens to command the book of Chronicles to be brought and read to him. And the one commanded to read to him could have brought any one book from the volumes of Chronicles, but he just happens to bring the book from the year that Mordecai acted on the king's behalf. And of course, he could have chosen to open that one book to any number of pages that year, but he just happens to open the book to the page describing Mordecai's intervention, saving the king's life. And all of it inspires the king to do something great for Mordecai as Haman just happens to show up at the royal palace. The one problem with that entire description of these events is the fact that with a sovereign God, nothing just happens. Nothing is random with God. Nothing happens by chance with God. Nothing is happenstance with God. No, he's sovereign. He is always in control. He's always deliberate and intentional about everything that he does. So listen, don't cross your fingers. Don't wish me luck. Don't count your lucky stars. Don't hang your hopes on wishful thinking or the farmer's almanac or fortune cookies or anything else. When the odds are stacked against you, be faithful, stand firm, and then leave the outcome up to the only person who can actually overcome those odds. He is the one who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Amos 4.13. Wow, when life seems to be falling apart and we're facing difficulties against all odds, we have a part to play. And we must be faithful in that and stand firm. But at the end of the day, God is in control and he alone determines the outcome. Just wait till we get to next week. Because this part of the story is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to all that God is about to do for his people, which is foreshadowed of all people in the statement made by Haman's wife, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you're toast, pal. You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Clearly, God is in control. Some of you are facing situations in your life today that seem like Haman building the gallows for your ruin. Situations that seem like a crushing storm rocking your entire world. And everywhere you turn, all you can see is a no-win situation with the odds stacked firmly against you. The wind is over here. The waves are over here. Bolts of lightning when I look up and black seas beneath me. And maybe you're still trying to decide whether or not to even get out of the boat. 
Maybe you're questioning whether or not you have the faith to even face the storm, but I'm telling you, faith is rarely made strong on calm waters. It is in the storms of life where our faith is tested. That is where our faith becomes strong. So if Jesus is calling you out of the boat, then get out of the boat and face the storm. Don't bow to fear and doubt when the waves batter you and the wind pushes against you. You stand firm. Don't give up. Don't give in. Because at the end of what seems like an eternally long walk through the most difficult days of your life, Jesus is waiting for you. And he calms the wind and the waves. He commands the seas and they must obey him because he alone is sovereign. He alone is in control. Why? So you don't have to be. The burden of the outcome is not ours to carry. It's his. Our part is to be faithful and stand firm. And then let God be God against all odds.